0: Welcome to the Church 214 Podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Good morning. Well, that, was, that was fast. Normally I have to like shout you guys down because you're so, you're so interested in building community. And I love that. Um, For those of you that don't know me, if you're new, my name is Phil Schaefer. I'm the worship pastor here, and I also get to preach a little bit. And it's one of my greatest uh, desires. It's one of the funnest things I get to do. And before I really get started, I'd like to make another statement. If you were here last time, I preached about a month ago. uh, I informed all of you that... Uh, typically, preaching weeks are filled with a lot of distraction, and all the preachers can like say "Amen right now if you 're yeah um, and last time I informed you that the the school street barn swallows uh, were the source of distraction i 'd like to report that uh, the one created in the image of God has prevailed. <laughs> The School Street barn swallows are gone, no idea where where they went, but I have again established dominion over the earth. (laughs) So um, on to the next uh, much more serious distraction. This time around, on Thursday night, uh, there was an unfortunate accident in our kitchen and some very hot soup was spilled on my wife and my four-year-old son, Lex. And for the first 10 to 15 minutes or so, it looked very bad very bad. Um, But as we cleaned up and prayed and received prayer from many of you, um, we began to see so many silver linings. And I'm I'm happy to report that the burns that they sustained are much, much smaller than they probably should have been. Um, Becca was actually thankfully wearing a long sleeve shirt and jeans, thick jeans. Um, that protected her and the shirts she was wearing was actually a shirt that she bought for me But was too small for me. So it turned into a shirt that she was gonna wear um, It's a forgetting country shirt, and it said for God is with us on it and I'm like I'd like to thank my mom For showing up at 930 to help clean up our kitchen for an hour. I'd like to thank my sister, Peyton, for doing the same, for showing up and bringing some healing salve from the Amish, which we appreciate the Amish very much (laughs) today. And I'd like to thank my big sister, Heidi, for being Heidi. And Holly for being Holly. And all of you that there's too many today, for Chris, to Chris for being Chris, for Kip, for being Kip. For Ike for being the family doctor. Um, and that distraction was much greater than the school street barn swallows I can tell you that Um, but it was not successful and although I'm a little bit more weary than I was last time I can assure you that the word is going to come out today in its fullness if you're with me so last week my brother Ike did a fantastic job I want to honor him um, for doing, executing our first anchor week, for lack of a better term. Uh, he did a wonderful job reviewing where we've been, reminding us where we've been, and also giving us a preview of where we're going. Reminding us little things about just like the different genres of literature and revelation and why that's important. Refocusing our eyes on the throne because that's really the point of every single message in this series. No matter how crazy it gets, in this world or in this text that we read, your eyes need to be fixed on the throne. And it's one of those, and we're, and we're going to be kind of doing that again this week and next week because we're in Revelation 4 and 5. You can go ahead and turn there while, while I'm kind of setting things up. But if you hear any similarities between Ike's message and mine or between the two of our messages and the message next week, it's not because like we're brothers or we're copying and pasting each other or we can't come up with anything new to say. It's that we don't need to come up with anything new to say. And if you hear a lot of repetition, it's because that's what the text has for us. And these three three weeks together are kind of one giant anchor, triple thick layer of foundation, if you will, um, that is going to set us up for the rest of this series and way beyond that for the whole next season of our church. I firmly believe this. And the thing about foundations is I like that I get to stand on a stage. It's much better visual than when I'm in my kitchen. But um, I practice in my kitchen sometimes, by the way. But uh, the thing about a good foundation is when you stand on it, what's the point? You don't sink. And the previous seasons of our church... We're the best they've ever been, the best that church has ever been at that time. I don't want to minimize anything that has happened before. In fact, I want to celebrate it. We should all celebrate those things. But this new triple layer foundation that we're setting up last week, this week, and next week, is what we're we're standing on that new foundation that's been built on the previous ones. And we're saying we are never going back there. It's not because there's anything wrong with back there. It's because we're done with that. And we're going forward. We're going this way. We're going higher. The Lord said to Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. And these three weeks are the start of that. Again, not just for the rest of Revelation, but for the next season of our church. Are you ready for that? Okay. So again, I said it's Revelation 4 and 5, and it's going to be both chapters, both weeks, this week and next week. It's not Revelation 4 this week and 5 next week. It's both chapters, both weeks. Because what we have is one scene, one vision of the throne room of God, and there's so much content. There's so much imagery. There's, that All of this is so important for the foundation of the, before we set the foundation, before we get to the really crazy stuff, which starts in chapter 6. Okay? So this week I'm going to bring some clarity to the, the imagery, some of the imagery, certainly not all of it, there's too much, but some of the imagery that we see in 4 and 5. And we're going to rise above the misconceptions that the church tends to throw into these passages so that we can refocus on what is most important, the one seated on the throne. And then when I was studying for this message, I was, because I felt so strongly, I needed this word foundation kept coming up. I was trying to, I kept asking what I thought at least was deeper and deeper, more fundamental questions to try to get down to the bottom, to actual bedrock, right? When you set up a foundation, you can't build it on sand or dirt. You have to build it on bedrock so it doesn't sink. So I was trying to drill down to the most, I was trying to think of the most fundamental question that I could ask the Lord and then start my message. And finally one day I I was out by the, the lakes near our house or the ponds near our house where, and our boys were fishing and I was kind of walking around watching them make sure they didn't hook each other or anything like that. <laughs> and I was asking the Lord questions about this, these chapters. And I finally, I don't know why I thought of this, but um, it can only be the Lord. I finally asked the Lord, God, why are these chapters even here? Why, why is it in there? And then I thought, that's about as deep as I can go. (laughs) Why is it even here in the first place? Um, Because it's just a bunch of throne room imagery, right? And in chapters 1 through 3, there's plenty of throne room imagery. Why do we need the extended edition, director's cut, Lord of the Rings 10-hour version in 4 and 5? Why do we need that? John uses two whole chapters to describe the throne room before actually getting to the point and continuing the story in chapter 6, and I'll, I'll show you that in a second. But this is why we had two intro weeks in the very beginning. This is why we had an anchor week last week. This is why we're doing four and five the way we're doing it this week and next week. And this is why we're doing another anchor week in October. It's because it's exactly what John does in this revelation, this book of revelation of Jesus Christ. John is... he, he routinely throughout this book says hey 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 wait a I'll get back to the story in a second but you need to see this first because if you don't see this you're going to get the story wrong yeah. okay so are you ready are you are you ready to get into the text right now revelation chapter 1 here we go we're just very simple today just going to take a few verses at a time preach through them hopefully it encourages you hopefully it challenges you and then we'll get out of here okay after this i looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Pause. <laughs> Aren't you glad that the door to heaven is open to you? There we go. All right. We could, see, there you go. We're done. I'll we'll go home. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Pause. You can go from right that, that period right there to chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6 is what must take place after this. Okay? All of 4 and 5 is just John, he came up here and he saw all this stuff and he's describing it. And then what must take place after this, that's actually chapter 6. So he's wasting our time, right? Wasting ink, wasting parchment. It's expensive, at least at the time it was. Or maybe we actually do need to slow down. And keep going. Verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit. Very quickly. Your proximity to the Lord determines your intimacy with Him. And the speed at which you obey His voice, coupled with that intimacy with Him, will determine to what extent you operate in the Spirit. He was very close to the Lord already. And God said, "God said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. He came up immediately and um, immediately at once I was in the Spirit. Don't miss that. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, that should sound weird to you because John is describing the God of the universe as he looked kind of like some rocks. Okay? And, and like... and. So with that, um, with that, I'm going to introduce a new segment I'd like to call Uncle Flop's Geology Lab. <laughs> Are you ready for a little bit of science? Shocker, right? Shocker. Science from the engineer, right? So Jasper, now we all know what an emerald looks like. Uh nice beautiful green gem often used in jewelry, but Jasper and Carnelian. I, I'd heard them before because I've read the text many times, but I've never really bothered to you know care about Jasper or Carnelian. So can we just put up a picture of so on the on the left is is Jasper and on the right is Carnelian. And that's sorry, I'm blocking your view. Now that's that's beautiful, I suppose. Like, but is that that's good enough? For Yahweh? Right? I I, I don't know. Like, like in chapter 1, the throne room imagery is like white robe and beard and golden sash and and like flashes of lightning. And then John's like, Jasper and Carnelian. (laughs) Right? Okay. Maybe there's more to this. In the last hundred years scientists have discovered some really cool things about how precious gems like those and others interact with light. Now a really quick lesson about light. There's a bunch of different light sources in this room. Okay, it's reflecting off of all the walls, off of each other, off of different surfaces. And so the sum total of all the light that's coming into your eye right now is coming in at different angles, different frequencies, different intensities, and that's very diffused or unfiltered, you might say. Okay, I'll call that normal light, for lack of a better term. Okay, but when you put on polarized sunglasses, that polarization filter, what happens when the light passes through it is the particle slash wave of light, thank you, the particle slash wave of light, all of them are coming from different angles, when they go through that filter, they get filtered and aligned, and they all start moving in relatively the same angle, same direction. They're, they're, they start moving parallel to each other instead of doing all sorts of craziness like this. Then what scientists did is they said, okay, well we have, a, we have a polarization filter like this. Let's take another one and rotate it 90 degrees. So now we have kind of like a waffle grid sort of, there's two polarization filters. When you shine light through that, the two filters, cross-polarized light, becomes pure light perfectly aligned. Now normally you think of a laser, that's just very high intensity perfect light that can injure you or kill you. This is just normal light like this, two polarization filters like a waffle and you get perfectly pure light. And then they said, let's take some of these precious gems and slice them really thin and see what, see what happens when we shine that pure light through them. And what they discovered was something very interesting. All gems fall into two categories, isotropic and anisotropic. Now, you take the most beautiful prized gems on Earth, diamonds and rubies, as a great example. Beautiful under normal light. And then you, but then you, took, you take your cross-polarization filters and shine pure light onto them, and they look like this. Gray. Dark. Dark. Not beautiful at all. I couldn't find the best picture of this, but if you take just like a chunk of diamond and shine pure light on it, it almost looks like a lump of coal. Not beautiful at all. Curiously, anisotropic gems behave very differently when you shine pure light on them, and Jasper and Carnelian and Emerald happen to be anisotropic gems. And they look beautiful, decent, under normal light, but this is what happens when you shine pure light on them. Emerald is just green under normal light, but when it encounters pure light, you have all of the colors of the rainbow contained within it. And so Yahweh doesn't look like a green rainbow. Heaven. In fact, all of these gems right here are called out in various places in Revelation. They're okay, beautiful under normal light, but when they encounter pure light, this is what happens. So if I would submit That heaven is way more beautiful than you realize. And John didn't even know that this was true of gemstones because he didn't have cross-polarization filters and the ability to cut things in in thin slices. He wouldn't have known this from a scientific perspective. But yet he put this in here because the one who created these gemstones revealed it to him. And it only took us until the last hundred years to discover these things. There's so, much, there's so much here, you guys. Let's keep going. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the, th- on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. This is the famous 24 elders verse. Um, lots of debate about unnecessary debate about the importance of this passage, but let's just zoom out for a second. So we have, he sees Yahweh, and then he sees these 24 elders seated on thrones as well around him. So what we have here is a divine council scene. Now, please be brave. Some of you are new. Please be brave. Have you ever heard the term divine council before? Raise your hand. Okay, very few hands going up. That's good. So as a quick review, um, the church tends to teach the spiritual realm in a very simplistic way. You have God and Satan in terms of relative power, kind of like this. And then you have a bunch of angels and demons, like foot soldiers, all like here. And they're all the same. And that's not even remotely true. Okay, there are hierarchies of authority here on earth between humans, right? There are also hierarchies of authority in the spiritual realm, on the angelic side and on the demonic side, okay? Okay. And the divine council are the highest authority, highest, most powerful created beings in God's family in the spiritual realm. Other terms we use for them are lesser gods, small g gods. Okay? Some of them rebelled against Yahweh and created their own religions, like Islam, like Buddhism, like Hinduism, and deceived people into worshiping themselves. And some of these lesser gods remain faithful to Yahweh and serve him and carry out his will and assist him in ruling the universe, not because he needs their help, but because they are members of his family that he created, that he loves, and he wants to give them an eternal purpose. Spoiler alert, the same is true for you. That's the divine counsel. Now, this is not an idea that I just made up. There's a ton of verses in the Bible that explain how this works. I'll give you the most famous one. We're not going to put it up on the screen. Just, just write this down. Go read it and let your mind explode in the best way. 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 through 22. The prophet Micaiah is prophesying against the king, king of Israel, King Ahab. And he, set, and he describes his own throne room vision. He says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne and his divine counsel was assembled around him. And the Lord said to his divine counsel, the time has come for King Ahab to die. How should we go about doing that? So the Lord, who is sovereign over all, has decided it is time for King Ahab's life to end, but he leaves it up to his divine counsel to decide. The verses go on to say, one spirit came forward and suggested one thing, one spirit said another thing, and finally a spirit came forward and said, hey, I'm going to be... What if, what, what, if, what if I go and be a lying spirit in the mouths of his prophets, his false prophets, the prophets of Baal and Asherah? And the Lord says, yes, now you go do that for you will succeed. Did the Lord need the lesser God to go do that thing for him? No, he did not. He could have just thought that and executed the, death of Ahab, the deception and the death of Ahab but he chose to exercise the fullness of his being, the fullness of all those characteristics about him. He's all-powerful, he's all-present, he's all-knowing, he's all-love, all-kindness, all-strength, all-wisdom. He chooses to exercise those things about himself through other people that he created. That is how the divine counsel works. That is what we're dealing with in Revelation, And then there's a lot of debate, of course, about whether the 24 elders are humans or whether they're these supernatural beings that I talked about in the Old Testament, the First Testament. Um, and why is there only 24? Well, Ike was very wise to bring up that numbers in Revelation are usually symbolic, which means they're not to be taken literally. And there's a lot of really cool reasons why there's 24. The most obvious one that people tend to bring up is, well, it's the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. And I'm, I'm totally on board with, with that interpretation. But when you go much deeper than that, people tend to go way too literal with that. And there's a lot of problems when you go literal with the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. Because, for instance, John is alive still. And he goes up and he sees 24 seats filled with 24 elders. So is he seeing himself seat, seated there? Right, Like you have the Judas thing who was one of the 12 apostles and was a great member of the apostles for a period of years and then eventually fell away and he was replaced after. Like, so how do you deal with that? And then the 12 tribes of Israel, well, the 12 tribes of Israel, are you talking about Old Testament characters? Like who from the 12 tribes are you going to choose? Because all the, all the disciples were 12, part of the 12 tribes, right? So you're taking Old Testament characters, because the 12 tribes existed in the New Testament. And spoiler alert, there's actually not, there's 12 tribes, but there's actually 13 named people groups because Joseph really wasn't a tribe. His two sons were half tribes that made up a full tribe. And and then you go to chapter seven and you read about the 144,000 in Revelation. And guess what? The tribe of Dan isn't listed there, but he's listed in the Old Testament. So how do you deal with that? And Joseph isn't a tribe, but yet he's listed as a tribe in Revelation seven. So how do you deal with that? And we get all, pfft. who cares? I guess it's kind of my point. Like, that's not the point. We can't get so zoned in on this 24 thing, although there's lots of cool reasons why it's there. We can't get into that. Let's add, but this is not the first time we actually, that, that this type of scene is depicted in the Bible. In fact, in the First Testament, there is, this, there is a scene in the physical realm where this exact same thing takes place. If we go to Exodus 24, We'll see something almost identical. Exodus 24, verse 1 The Lord said to Moses, Come up here. Come up to the Lord on Mount Sinai. Then, not just Moses, the friend of God, the special one, right? We tend to think that the pastors are the ones that are close to God and they're the ones that do the God stuff, and then we just like listen to them and follow them all the time. That's not how it works. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. Joshua probably went up too, so you're talking 74, 75 people. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones. Sapphire was one of those anisotropic gems that explodes in color when when it encounters pure light. Like the very heaven for clearness, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and drank. They had a meal with God face to face. So there's a physical representation of that divine council thing going on on Mount Sinai, what is already going on in the spiritual realm. So what's what's the point? Are there 24 super special spots that you most definitely won't get one? Because that's what you're thinking right now. Well, there's no way I'm in the top 24 followers of Jesus, right? There's not 24 spots. Let's instead focus on what do the elders look like? If you go back to that passage, it says they're seated on thrones, wearing white garments, and they have crowns on their heads. Go back and read the end of the letters. What do you find? To the one who conquers, I will give what? A white garment. To the one who conquers, I will give a crown. To the one who conquers, I will give you a throne. You are destined, as a follower of Jesus, if you endure in your believing loyalty to Yahweh until the end, as Heather was talking about, until your testimony is complete, you will be given a seat on the divine council as well. All of you. All of us. Throughout all of history. Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, he says, do you not know that you're to rule over the angels? This destiny is for all of us. But because we live in this already but not yet tension, guess what? You're seated, on, you're seated in heavenly places already. Right, Chris? Right. So you have that authority right now, too. In eternity, you will rule over the universe with Yahweh. Maybe your, authority, your scope of authority right now, maybe it's a little bit smaller than the universe, but you still exercise that authority right here, right now, in the physical and the spiritual realm. Let's keep going. Revelation 4. 5 and 6. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. I've talked about the seven spirits before too. In this particular spot, they're referred to as torches of fire. Now, on one level, the the number seven is very important. It's the number of perfection or completion, and so Here it's referring to, on one level, the fullness of God's attributes, the perfection of God's attributes. But God also, like I said before, chooses to exercise the fullness of those attributes through his created family. So these seven spirits are not just some idea. They're actually angels, and they are the seraphim. The seraphim, translated into English, is burning ones. So you have burning seven torches of fire, right? The word seraphim is also used most famously in Isaiah 6. In that scene, Isaiah is having a vision of the throne room and the seraphim are flying around six wings. He's very scared. He says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. And one of the seraphim takes a coal from the altar. There's that fire imagery and flies to him and burns his lips and purifies him. So the seraphim, they're they're not just burning ones, they actually have a role. Their role is that of a throne guardian. Okay? That means they protect the throne of Yahweh from defilement, from anything that is unclean. That sacred space. And again, does God need help keeping himself ritually or ceremonially unclean? Can he handle somebody that is unclean coming into his presence? and keep himself clean? The answer is, yes, he can. He does not need the seraphim to do that, to protect his throne for him. But he loves his children. He loves his family. And he wants to give them jobs to exercise the fullness of his attributes, the fullness of his holiness, the fullness of his perfection. And he gives us this imagery to remind us who he is and who we are and his plan for salvation, because if you go back to the Old Testament and you read about the tabernacle, there was a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, and in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant where God's manifest presence actually was, and there was a thick curtain there, and guess what they sewed on the curtain? Giant pictures of seraphim, the burning ones, the throne guardians, and that was basically a keep out sign. Hey, you can't come in here if you're unclean. Even the high priests, only once a year. You can't come in here if you're unclean. And later on when they built the temple, massive temple, huge thick curtain. What did they sew on that curtain? Giant seraphim. Hey, keep out. You can't come in unless you're clean. And then a man named Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine. And the moment that he gave up his life, The moment his spirit left him and he breathed his last breath, that giant curtain in the temple tore in two from top to bottom and the seraphim were no longer in the way. Now the seraphim are still protecting God's throne to this day because it's still that picture, that reminder of, hey, this this one is different. This is the creator of the universe. But the best news is To the one who conquers, seated on the throne, white garment, purified, crown of royalty, son, daughter, will rule as king or queen. And you will have full access to that throne, and the seraphim will not keep you away. They'll be there to show, to continue to show you how perfect and holy he is, but they will not keep you from his presence because you don't need to be kept away from him because you have been washed by the blood of the lamb who is also the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered death and Hades and who has descended into hell and grabbed those keys and executed the greatest jailbreak of all time. And then we have the sea of glass imagery, right? And I always think about... God seated on a throne, and then there's like this lake, with no waves. And I'm like, well, how big is the lake? And like, it, it's it's a. Little... Let's 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 see if there's more to it though. Uh, Job thirty seven eight 37, 18, Can you spread out the sky as like a hard cast metal mirror? That's a little weird, don't you think? Or Job twenty two fourteen. He walks on the vault of heaven. Or Psalm twenty nine ten. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Amos 9.6, the Lord builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth. And then Jesus says in Matthew 5.34, do not take an oath either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, obviously, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Now, Revelation 4 and all of these, these other passages I read, they're, what they're referring back to actually is Genesis 1, where it talks about the firmament being created. That's a weird word for most of us in our culture and time. But what this is alluding to is what we call the ancient Hebrew worldview or the ancient Hebrew view of the universe. So can we put that diagram up? Hey, okay. If you take all of these and many other passages and sum them together, what you, what you will understand is this is how the Hebrews viewed the universe. The earth was flat in their minds. Don't worry about it. Moving on. You have, the, you have the foundations of the earth, these pillars that went down into the sea. You have the shield, the underworld, which Chris talked about a few weeks ago, the keys of death in Hades passage, right? And all of the sun, the moon, and the stars were inside of this dome, that, and the dome was that layer, that hard layer was called the firmament right here. And the reason they thought that is because they looked up at the sky, and there was this blue barrier that seemed like they couldn't get past it because, of course, they couldn't. They had no way of flying up into the sky. And it looked like the sun was in front of that during the day, and the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets looked like they were in front of that dark barrier. So in their minds, the entire universe was inside this ball. And that firmament was a hard cast metal mirror, vault of heaven right? Beyond that, the firmament was the heavens, where God's throne was. So what we have here is God's, does God have a little lake up there in heaven, or is his throne, in fact, just beyond the firmament, and is that sea of glass the firmament? Translation, who cares? Who cares? You can take the picture down. You know, God's not nearly as far away as you think he is. You can look up at that sky, see that blue barrier. Now, we know that scientifically, in the physical realm at least, none of that's true. We can fly past the blue barrier. But it's only a few miles away. Right? His throne... His presence is not nearly as far away as you think it is. No matter how far you think he feels away from you right now, he's not far away. He's not far away. He sees you. He knows you. He created you. He sees everything you're going through. He's not nearly as far away as you think he is. Verse 6. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures. Here we go. Full of eyes, front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, third like the face of a man, fourth like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, meaning inside of their bodies, there's eyeballs. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Okay, so when you read that passage, you probably, the image that comes to mind is probably this one. Now, uh, raise your hand if you think that's it. Oh, good. It's not it. Um, that makes no sense at all. How can you be full of eyeballs? You can't. <laughs> um, What we need to do is focus in on that word eyes, though, because the Greek word for eyes also is the same word that's used to describe something that sparkles or shines like a star. So instead of saying full of eyes, you could say full of stars. If you go back to Ezekiel and read those throne room passages, we read about wheels within wheels full of eyes. Actually, no, full of Stars, what do stars do? They move about the universe in circular orbits, wheels within wheels, crossing paths. So what we have here in Revelation 4 is not monster or angels filled with eyeballs. What we have here is descriptions of constellations. Do we not have a constellation shaped like a lion, full of stars? Do we not have a constellation shaped like a man, or a bowl. So, what we have here is the constellations moving across the sky at regular intervals, ref- reflecting his glory, glorifying him. And you might say, okay, what's the point? Who cares? It's constellations. And I'm not doing some weird new agey zodiac astrology thing. Okay, that's our fault. Okay. God put the stars into place, and he put them into place in those shapes. We didn't just figure, oh, look, we drew the lines. Look, there's a shape. No, the shapes were there before. Okay, we are the ones that took all of that and made it a mess. Okay? So don't be scared of the constellations. You should actually be thankful for the constellations, because what is the point is that God is seated on the throne in everything that is happening, that has happened, is happening, and will happen will happen on his schedule precisely when he needs to. So don't worry. And if you allow me a dad joke or a pun, I will ask you this question, where should our eyes be? They should be up. Look up at the stars and see that God has fixed all of the universe into place with perfect precision in the physical realm. And then look past that and fix your eyes on the one seated on the throne who is above all things in the spiritual realm. Revelation 4, 9 through 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Quick time out for cultural context thing. That phrase, our Lord and God, is very important because We don't know for sure when the book of Revelation was written, but most likely it was written during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. And while Domitian was alive, he demanded that his subjects refer to him as our Lord and God. And John, while he was imprisoned by the Roman government on Patmos, writing this revelation, decided to sneak this little shot in there and say, Well, you just decided, Domitian, to take that title for yourself. But on what basis? Because the reason why the elders refer to him as our Lord and God is because, and because he's worthy to receive all power and glory and honor and all those things, is because, why? You created all. Yahweh created all things. Yahweh's, by his will, they existed and were created. Domitian, you didn't do any of those things. You aren't worthy to be called our Lord and God. Yahweh is, and here's why. Now, that was for free. What about us? (laughs) What about us? Here's what the Lord showed me. And as as a worship leader, this, this really pushed me. The greatest form of worship occurs, not when you sing really loud or really well. The greatest form of worship occurs when you use the authority that he's given you and reflect the glory back to him. That is exactly what those elders are doing. And again, reminder who's the elders? That's us. Okay? Use the authority, reflect the glory. Because when you start to walk in divine authority, Oppression will come, but also lots of really good things. Breakthrough starts to happen. Revival starts to break out. All sorts of stuff. And as humans, we're programmed to worship something, and usually we forget that we're supposed to worship Yahweh. And so, when you walk in divine authority, the glory is going to start to flow in your direction instead of up. And so, as an elder, it is your responsibility to keep Revelation four in mind as that glory starts to come in your direction, and you said, "No, no," and you reflect it to him. You use the authority and reflect the glory. And when you do that, yet more authority will be given to you. God doesn't need you to do any of those things. But he chooses you to help reflect the fullness of his attributes to the universe. That is pretty cool, if you ask me. Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, both sides, written on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel. Again, don't have time to get into all of this. There's angels, there's mighty angels. There's hierarchies in the spiritual realm, okay? Proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Heidi did such a great job talking about this a few weeks ago in her letter. Um, In Revelation 1 through 3, the right hand of God is depicted as bringing life and encouragement and anointing. In Revelation 5, we see that it also brings judgment. doesn't feel like it right now, but the seven seals are about to be opened in chapter 6, and judgment comes when the seals are opened. That right hand can bring life, encouragement, and anointing, and it can also bring judgment. Here's the point. We do not accept any teaching in this church that depicts the God of the First Testament as angry and vengeful and the God of the New Testament as loving and kind and gracious. He is all of those things all of the time in both halves of the text. Such, any such teaching is evil and not of God. If you think the God of the New Testament is all lambs and rainbows and stuff, you have not read enough of the New Testament because I can tell you it's about to get real bad. Okay, How about Acts? Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead immediately when they lied to Peter and lied to God trying to manipulate Peter to blessing them and God to bless them for their false generosity. Struck dead immediately. That happened in Acts. After the cross, after all the good stuff, after, after Jesus came, all the one want- struck them dead immediately when they lied and tried to manipulate God into blessing them for false generosity. Do not get it twisted. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we're going to get into this in spades in two weeks when we get into Revelation 6. So you, and, you, and it's going to be so healing for you. It's going to be so healing for you. The word judgment, you hear that and your heart's, it, it, listen, healing is going to break out it's going to break out because you're going to hear it preached in a way that you've never heard it preached before. I can promise you that. And I don't want to steal any more Jason's thunder. Seven seals. Under John knew this. Under Roman law, if you prepared a, an important legal document like, say, a living will, spoiler alert, you need a living will if you don't have one. <laughs> right? It had to be sealed with seven seals and each of those seven seals were were connected to a specific witness, seven witnesses, seven personal seals. So when Caesar Augustus, for instance, the Roman emperor at the time when Jesus was born, when he died, seven people had to show up to the Roman Senate, verify their seal was still on the document, and they each opened their seal, one person, one seal. Only then was his will read before the Roman Senate. So John's weeping because he knows we got to find seven guys to open seven seals. And we couldn't even find one. And we looked in heaven, the residents of heaven couldn't find one. Looked on earth, no one worthy. Looked under the earth, the realm of the dead. There's really powerful people there too. Couldn't find any. I need seven guys, and I can't even find one. But, then verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. One of us said to John, hey, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He has descended into hell and grabbed the keys of death and Hades. Go back and read the letter to Philadelphia. Listen to Chris's message so he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. And then you're saying, okay, hold on. Verse four, no one was found. Verse five, found. they like lie or something? Um, it depends on how you read it. They looked, in heaven, they looked in heaven to find anyone that resided there to see if they were worthy. Couldn't find anyone. They looked on earth. Anyone bound to earth? Couldn't find anyone. Even went to the realm of the dead. Couldn't find anyone. Doesn't Jesus fit into that category? Certainly not. He's not just anyone. He's also not bound to heaven, earth, or under the earth. He created all of those things. He has always existed. And so, no, there is not a contradiction in the text at all. He doesn't fit into that category. John was weeping because he thought he needed to find seven really awesome people, and he didn't. He only needed to find one awesome God. the root of David is conquered. That's such an interesting phrase too, isn't it? Because Jesus is always referred to as the son of David, son of David, son of David, son of David, son of David. David. Which sort of implies that he came after David. And he did in the physical realm. By that time, King David's family tree was massive, right? But here he's referred to as the root of David before David, the foundation of David. So is Jesus the son of David or the root of David? And the answer is yes. The roots are the first thing, the beginning of the tree. But John wasn't going to call Jesus just the top branch or the biggest leaf. No, no. He was going to call him the root of David, the foundation of everything, the thing that starts growing before you even know the tree is there. Yes. The one who created the universe, the one who is equal to Yahweh. He's not just a descendant of David, he is equal to Yahweh. He's the root of David. And finally, spoiler alert it says that he is to open the scroll and its seven seals, meaning the seven seals we will read about in two weeks are not the contents of the scroll. In fact, we never find out what's written on the scroll. Now, the church tends to teach the seven seals as if they are the contents of the scroll, but that's not true. You can't read a single word of these kinds of scrolls until all 7 seals are broken and you unroll it. And all we see in Revelation, read the whole thing. Come come talk to me if you need to. We see the 7 seals removed, but we never hear about the scroll being unrolled and read. And that's okay. We should be thankful for that, actually because Revelation isn't the full description of what will happen. There's still some mystery, beautiful mystery. And I, this is just my personal belief. There's two sides to that scroll. I think one side of the scroll has judgments that have not been revealed and we will only see them when they happen. And the other side of the scroll has blessing that is yet to be described that is known only to Yahweh himself. So yes, I think the judgment that comes on the earth will be worse than even potentially worse than even this text describes. But I also believe, I believe this fully, that heaven will be way beyond what this text describes. And of course, what's the real point? We we do know, we don't know everything that's gonna happen, but we do know the final score, because the root of David has conquered. He's descended into hell and grabbed the keys of death in Hades and set you free. So so why is chapter 4 and 5 here in the first place? It's many things, but I believe the message for us today is that it's a pause. It's a Salem moment like the Psalms. It doesn't really need to be there for the purposes of the story. It's not part of the story necessarily, if you want to look at it in a very cynical way but it might just be the most necessary part of the whole thing. More necessary than the story itself. Way more necessary than the seven seals, way more necessary than all that stuff. Because you're right, it, it is not what must take place after this, but it is the cross polarization filter. Through which we must view what must take place after this. If you don't filter everything that comes next through this, man, that's all God's wanting to do. right that. What does that polarization filter do? It aligns the light. So when we look through it, what's it going to do? It's going to align our vision. It's going to unify us as a body. It's going to align your vision as an individual. Like, wait, what, what am I really supposed to be looking at? What am I really supposed to see? Think back to those gems, how they explode in color, explode in glory. When they are viewed properly, when the light is filtered properly, when your vision is filtered properly, you see the fullness of his glory. That's the point. That's why we need revelation for. So what does it mean for you today? Go ahead and put those four words up there. Grab onto one of these words, or maybe you need all of them. Some of you need an interruption, okay? You're you're totally blind. You might even be heading in the wrong direction, but you're totally blind to what's going on around you in the physical and the spiritual realm. And I'm, I'm not judging you. Okay, God's not judging you. He's desperate for you. He's trying to interrupt you right now. It's time to wake up. It's time to turn around and take action. Behold, behold him. Seek his face. Join his family. You need an interruption. You need to wake up. Okay? Some of you need an intermission. You're, you're heading in the right direction. Um, But you need need to slow down like a Salem moment in the Psalms. You're on the right path. You're doing the right things, but you're you're going too fast, and you're headed for a collision or burnout. You need to walk when the Spirit says walk. You need to run when the Spirit says run. You need to sit when the Spirit says sit. And some of you need to slow down and walk for a little bit. Some of you need to sit for like a year, like a year, going too fast. And I know you're saying, some of you are going to say things like, yeah, but I, but we need, to, we need to plan ahead, don't we? And we need to have a vision for where we're going and we need to like work. To-. Yes, 100%. I'm glad you have a five-year vision. I'm glad you can see the 10-year vision. But if you don't stop and sit for a while, you're going to miss what God is speaking to you here and now. You can hear the five-year vision and the 10-year vision. You can go after those things. But if you aren't hearing or you're ignoring the right now vision. You need to steward what, you're, what you have right now. If you don't do that, the five and 10-year vision is never going to come to pass. Never come to pass. Some of you need an intermission. Some of you need, I used this word last week, ignite, right? Some of you need ignition. Some of you have been in the right place and moving at the right pace, doing everything right, but God has more for you and it's time to move on. You need an ignition. I talked about this in the very beginning with the foundations. Go to a land that I will show you. Doing everything right. You've stewarded this moment well. Now it's time to move. There's more. Come up here. Move. Look around you. Start stepping forward. And lastly, some of you need an invitation and this is, this is it. The God of the universe is offering you a chance to come up here and behold his glory in its fullness and participate with him in his, in his plans. And I'm sorry if this book called the Bible has ever been described to you in any sort of way that would lead you to believe that it's a giant list of rules and that once you sign up to follow Jesus, you have to follow 7,000 rules. And there's no more freedom. There's no more happiness. It's just and there's fear of messing up. That is a false gospel, it is a false truth. It's from. It's a lie from the pit of hell, okay? The offer actually is, listen, I'm the God of the universe, and I love you enough to tell you exactly how I created this universe to function. I gave you all the cheat codes for marriage. I gave you all the cheat codes for every relationship. I gave you all the cheat codes for finances, all the cheat codes for health, all the cheat codes for everything. It's right here in this book. Take it or leave it. I'm not gonna coerce you into doing anything. You have all the freedom in the world. I put this free will inside of you and do not get this twisted. You can do whatever you want. God is telling you in this book. I'm telling read it. And really read it and you will find that he's telling you you go do whatever you want. You do you. You are free to make whatever choice you want. However, you will reap the consequences of those decisions, good or bad. What I have here for you in this book is my offer. You go come up with whatever ideas you want. You take whatever path you want. I'm also just going to tell you really quick, like I'm telling you the best option is to join my family. The best option is to follow me. But I will not force you. I will give you the freedom to make whatever choice you want. I will give you the freedom to take whatever path you want, believe in whatever God you want, worship whatever, whatever you want. Just know that in my opinion as the creator of the universe, the best option is to follow me. The best option is to join my family. That's what this message is about. And when you do that, those suggestions for how you should live don't feel like oppressive rules. They actually feel like the most freeing thing you've ever read. And the pressure should lift off your shoulders because it's not about you impressing him. It's about you saying, I've got nothing. But you said that your son Jesus does have something. And I'm not allowed to come into your presence because those seraphim are in the way. But you said that your son Jesus Died for my sins and cleansed me of all unrighteousness so that I can, in fact, be with you. So that I can, in fact, be in your presence. That is the message today. Why don't you stay on your feet and close your eyes? person that can hear my voice on the podcast or in this room, it's time for you to make a decision. One of those four words jumped out at you. And you may not have all the details figured out. That's okay. That's what God's for. That's what this family is for, it's to help you figure out what that really means for right now, the next five minutes, the next five days, the next month, the next two years. And so my, my, my invitation to you is simply this. Move. Now that might mean that you come up to the front and just sit in his presence it might mean that you come up to the front and you tap somebody on the shoulder whether you know them or not and you say hey i, I just i i need you to i need some help i need, i need you to pray for me and then tell them what you need actually tell them what you need and that's really hard to be vulnerable it's really hard but on the other side of that sentence on the other side of that thing that you feel like you don't wanna say because of what that other person might think, that maybe I'm not quite as righteous as, as, as people, I want people to think I am, or maybe I've struggled with anxiety and I don't, and I don't really wanna admit that. Um, on the other side of that sentence is healing. But every single person in this room on the podcast, you need to move now or slow down and stop. And you need to come find somebody and actually ask them, hey, I'm going too fast. I need, I need your help. to Just help me. I need to stop for a bit. And I don't even know how to do that. I don't know what it looks like. How do I? And we'll, very good. Let's, let's start working on that we're not going to fix it in this moment we're not going to fix it with a single prayer we certainly won't fix it with a single prayer but we're going to start today and we're going to figure it out and this family is going to help you step through that and they're going to keep your eyes fixed on the one the only one that can actually heal you of anything the one seated on the throne Honestly, that's the vast majority of what this family is going to always do. We can say really encouraging things. We can pray over you. We can, do, we can, we can help you. But the most important thing, the most effective thing, if you ask me, <laughs> that we do is just to remind you of who you are and who God is and to keep your eyes fixed on him, seated on the throne. Let the, if you need an interruption, you need to let that interruption happen. There's no judgment. There's no disappointment in his eyes, in our eyes. Be interrupted. Slow down and stop. Start moving on to the next thing. You've stewarded this moment. Some of you have stewarded the moment. Well, you need to move on. It's time to do that right now. And some of you need to give your life to Jesus for the first time that invitation. Some of you need to just say, hey, I, I've, I've never heard any of this stuff before, um, but I know I know that I'm a sinner and, and that I need to follow this Jesus. I need to join his family. If that's you today, please come find somebody in prayer. You can even just pray in your seat right now. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be super, super, Christian so to speak or churchy but you might say something like this God I, I, I love you um, I'm a sinner I want to be with you and there's no way I can get to you myself and so right now I'm putting my faith in your son Jesus who died on the cross for my sins because he can he can get me to you He is the source of my salvation. I'm putting my faith right now in him as the source of my salvation. And I am turning around and walking towards you with my eyes fixed on you. And I plan to be one of those people that conquers, that overcomes and endures in believing loyalty to the end so that I can be one of those seated on the throne right next to you. God, I need you. Just say, God, I need you. <laughs> if that's you, man, God, I need you. I need to put my faith in you right now for the salvation of my sins. It can be, it can be that simple. The band's gonna play a song and, 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 and you can feel free to move, do whatever you need to do, whatever the spirit leads you to do. God, we thank you for meeting us here today, for overwhelming us with your glory. We are your children. You know exactly what we need. And we're asking you right now to move in a way that overwhelms us, overwhelm us with your glory, with your healing, with your kindness. We are ready for you to do what only you can do.